0: Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jude 3 Project. And today I'm joined by a very special guest who's no stranger to the Jude 3 Project, Dr. Preston Sprinkle. Welcome, Preston.
1: Hey, thanks for having me on, Lisa. Great to be here.
0: <laughs> thanks for coming on again. You came came on when we first started the podcast for our, um, our Scandal How to Get Away with Sexuality series. Um, and so apparently you just love controversial topics. We talked about homosexuality the first time, now we're talking about hell, which is funny because I found out uh, uh, about you from your book with Francis Chan, Erasing Hell. So I knew you already that you had a passion for studying hell from that book, and then you (laughs) went to homosexuality, now you're back to hell. So...
1: (laughs) (laughs) well I'm, I'm not a hellfire brimstone preacher <laughs> but uh you know I think there is uh there, there's a lot of talk on hell it, it's one of those things that comes up with people outside the church and inside the church it's one of these you know I call it kind of the black sheep doctrine that you know people don't you know they they, they come to Christ and they have questions about hell and i I hear from all the time from people that have been Christians for 40 50 60 years that the number one thing they struggle with is, is the idea of hell. So it is important. It is an important topic.
0: Yeah. And I was just talking to, um, a couple, um, friends of mine from college that I met in campus ministry. And they've recently left the faith simply because of hell. They couldn't wrap their mind around a loving God sending people there. And that was them, their new thoughts on hell kind of, um, Shifted them to a more agnostic view. And um, that was an interesting conversation. So this is very important and very relevant um, Mm -hmm. for the time we're living in. Um, For those who didn't hear you on the first, um, the first time you were on, can you just tell our audience just a little bit about yourself?
1: Yes. Uh, I I just turned 40, actually. I'm married. I have four children. I'm uh, the vice president of a Bible college, e- Eternity Bible College, which was started by Francis Chan and the elders of Cornerstone Church back in 2004. And I'm currently in charge of the uh, Boise extension for Eternity Bible College, so that's my uh, day job. I also I love to write, so I've written a few books, and uh, also travel and speak and do other
0: things. And uh, yeah, trying to stay busy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, so today we're going to talk about hell. <laughs> <laughs> What made you uh want to write a book about hell? Um, I know you wrote the book with uh, Francis, yeah. Um, and now you're doing the, the intro and introduction and conclusion, um, to the four views of hell. The revised, I mean, the second edition. What what was the motivation behind you researching this topic?
1: So the first time with Erasing Hell, it was in the wake of Rob Bell's book Love Wins that stirred all kinds of questions and responses and, and I, with regard to the nature of hell. And I, I, I felt like every day when I was teaching, that students would come up afterwards and asking me, well, does the Bible actually talk about hell? And, and can people be rescued from it? And will everybody be saved in the end? And I kept getting all these questions. So I said, well, gosh, I need to do some research on my own. And and both Francis and I, when we got together, because he was getting the same questions and I was getting them as well. And. Both of us said, you well, know I, I have a lot of presuppositions about what I think the Bible says about hell, but I've never actually studied it. So <laughs> the book was really our, our journey to say, well, we better we better look at what the Bible says in much more detail than just kind of assuming we know what we think it says. So that was that was the thought behind The Rings in Hell. And, and I, I was really, um, I became really interested in the topic uh, in the wake of that. And so over the last few years, off and on, I've, I've tried to stay up on the discussion, and you know, w- when I'm between books that I'm writing, I try and do some research on hell. And then Zondervan approached me to see if I'd be the general editor for this new Four Views book, and and I thought, man, this would be a great time for me to um, kind of dig into all the different perspectives, or at least some of the main ones. And so that that's what the you of know, the Four Views book. I, I got an opportunity to read all, all four essays by each of the contributors and the responses from each one and as an editor i'm kind of like the referee The you know i push back i play devil's advocate so it it forced me to really dig into um what i think are the the best arguments for you know the major views on hell so that's uh and that book comes out in a couple weeks and uh yeah and so i wrote an introduction and conclusion you know and, and again in that book i i it's it was kind of a fun book to edit because i get to play the I get to play the devil's advocate and the judge. (laughs) (laughs) What about that? And and it was helpful for my own thinking to do that.
0: That sounds great. Um, How how have your views of hell changed since writing these books?
1: Yeah, good. Um, Well, I guess on a very broad level, I've seen that um, there are different valid Christian perspectives on hell. So you have the traditional view of eternal conscious torment that, you know, when the unbeliever goes to hell, they are kept there forever and ever and ever in conscious torment by God. And for for many years in my Christian walk, I just assumed that that's what hell meant. Like I thought H-E-L-L like meant (laughs) uh, eternal conscious torment. And I, you know, when Francis and I wrote Erase in Hell, we found out very quickly that that's not... Um, that that the Bible clearly talks about hell. That, that, that hell exists. It's a place of punishment for those who you know deny God. For unbelievers, and yet uh, the nature of hell is you know I think that there's valid biblical arguments for various views. Now, my views have shifted primarily in terms of the duration of hell. So, in erasing hell back in 2011, Francis and I we leaned towards eternal conscious torment. But we were really struck by the fact that the Bible didn't seem nearly as clear on that as we had originally thought. Now, since 2011, the more I study it, the more I now lean the other way towards what is often referred to either as annihilation or conditional immortality. Or some people refer to the doctrine as terminal punishment, meaning that the punishment isn't uh, ongoing torment, but the punishment after Judgment Day is death. Uh, mm-hmm. Paul says the wage, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Or Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body, but fear him who can kill both, both body and soul in hell or destroy both body and soul in and hell. And, and you see this idea, this language of destruction or John 3, 16, you know, if you don't believe in Jesus, you will perish. Now, that word perish suggests to me that there is some sort of finality to whatever punishment's going to happen. And so that, you know, after looking at uh, the text, especially the New Testament, I've seen, man, it seems that the dominant way that the final fate of the, of the unbeliever is described is that it's described in terms that would suggest some sort of finality. So that, that's where I lean now. I, I don't know if I'd, well, I, well, I would say I have a, the more I study it, and the more I look at the traditional kind of responses to the annihilation view, I'm, I'm, I'm not really compelled by those responses. And the more I look at the exegetical evidence for annihilation, it seems to be just really overwhelming, if I can be quite honest.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think um, one of the things when I was listening to one of your lectures, you talked about kind of what hell meant in the original language. I think it's Gehenna is yeah. the Valley of Gehenna where the children of Israel uh, used to sacrifice their kids to, was it Molech?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, yeah, uh, the Greek word that is translated into the English word hell is the Greek word Gehenna. And Gehenna just comes from a Hebrew word that means the Valley of Hinnom, which was a location, a literal location outside Jerusalem where uh, during the 6th, the uh, let's see, yeah, sixth, primarily the, well, let's see, 7th century, in, in Israel's history, 7th century BC, that the Israelites were sacrificing their children to Molech in that valley. And, and Jeremiah, in his uh, book especially, says, well, God's going to judge you for your wickedness in the same valley where you committed that wickedness. So the idea of the Valley of Hinnah became associated with God's future judgment. Now, the Old Testament doesn't spell it out that clearly. it just kind Kind of like God's going to judge you. But then between the Testaments, that whole idea that God's going to rain down judgment on the wicked in the Valley of Hinnom sort of took on more of an afterlife kind of idea so that the word Gehenna was coined between the Testaments to refer to God's future judgment in more of an afterlife sense. And it seems that when Jesus picks up on that idea and uses the term Gehenna, he's using it in that, in that Jewish sense of a future punishment after uh, Jesus, the judge returns to judge the righteous and the wicked.
0: Yeah, I think that's, that's very interesting. um, Just understanding kind of how that ties in and we kind of read our, I never took the time to like just study hell (laughs) Um, and we kind of read, you know, you go about what you've been taught and you kind of read that into the text. Uh, So you're not, reading the text and letting the text and the context shape what it's really saying. You're just going by, you know, your ideas of hell, hell, fire. You know, when you think of fire, I mean, hell, you think of just it being hot and fire and tormented forever. forever. Um, and I think that it's really important to kind of, you know, look at the text like you're, like you're saying, um, what yeah. are the four views and what biblical evidence is there to support each view?
1: Oh, man, okay, I'll try and do this quickly. <laughs> so so the, the four views are, number one, the eternal conscious torment, the traditional view. Number two, annihilation, that uh, that the unbeliever will... Now, now some annihilationists will say that there might be a period of suffering and then death, and other annihilationists would say that death is the punishment, so there is no real suffering other than the suffering of dying, you know? Um, and then the third view is uh, referred to as either universalism or... Um, the author Robin Perry in the Four Views book calls it ultimate reconciliation, that ultimately all things and all people will be reconciled to God. And then the fourth view isn't actually a view of hell; it's 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 uh, it's the purgatory, uh, the view of purgatory. Um, now purgatory, um, you know, has been commonly misunderstood to be kind of in the category of hell, and it may, maybe including it in the Four Views book on hell will perpetuate that confusion, but. <laughs> Purgatory is actually refers more to the, the fate of the believer, not the unbeliever. In fact, the author, Jerry Walls, who happens to be a Protestant, by the way, a Protestant philosopher, teaches at a Baptist university, and he argues for a, a view of purgatory that says the, uh, the believer who dies before he's been fully sanctified will undergo a process of sanctification before he Enters eternal life. So, and Jerry Walls in that essay, he, he affirms the traditional view of hell. He doesn't argue for it because he's focusing more on purgatory. Um, but so, but you know, we, we included it because it does it does kind of contribute to how you view the afterlife as a whole. And you know, the the original four views book also had an essay on purgatory, so we we wanted to maintain some sort of continuity with the older book uh, in that. So so really, I mean, there's there's actually three major views of hell, and this one's kind of a, a step sideways, if you will, in, in the book. And um, there, there, there's there's other perspectives. I mean, you, you know, C.S. Lewis or even N.T. Wright. And, has kind of a different view of hell that, that wouldn't fit within those three categories. Um, and I believe, I haven't done any research on it, but uh, people have told me that the Eastern Orthodox Church has a view of hell that doesn't really fit these kind of three major views as well.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If, oh, the biblical evidence. You want me to go there or is it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, well, yeah, that'd be really hard to unpack. I, so the, with, with ultimate reconciliation, um, yes, you clearly have scripture, Scripture, this idea that God will judge it, like that's a pervasive theme. But people, uh, people who endorse ultimate reconciliation, point out that in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, you often see restoration on the other side of judgment. The classic example is the exile of Israel, when Israel was exiled in the Babylon, and the prophet said, "This is God's judgment," um, but then said, "But He." going to return you. And so you have in scripture, this idea of restoration after judgment, um, which is kind of the broader you know, lens through which they, they read scripture. With annihilation, there, there are more than 100 passages that refer to the ultimate fate of the unbeliever. And in those 100 passages, more than 100 passages, it uses language of death, destruction, or you know the, the end of, it'll talk about the end of the wicked. And it uses language that would suggest some sort of finality. Again, the wages of sin is death. Paul doesn't say the wages of sin is ongoing torment forever, but the free gift is eternal life. He says the wages of sin is death. Um, The eternal conscious torment view um, has a lot of tradition behind it. I mean, the majority of Christian theologians throughout the last at least 1,500 years have embraced uh, eternal conscious torment. And you have statements in the Bible like eternal destruction in 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 or... Uh, uh, Matthew 2546 says 25 yeah, 2546 says you know that the 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 unbeliever will in, undergo eternal punishment and the believer will undergo eternal life and so you have this contrast if the life is never ending then the punishment also must be never ending and then there's some passages in the book of Revelation that get pretty um, pretty gnarly (laughs) revelation 14 revelation 20 that that they would draw on so again what i point out in my introduction and conclusion is that all these views have exegetical biblical arguments that are used to support it nobody's just saying well i don't like the idea of eternal conscious torment so i'm going to believe this like they're not going on emotions or sentimentality Uh, they are drawing their view from scripture which forces the reader to say okay i need to lay out these biblical arguments See which one makes the most sense.
0: I know when you're talking about the um, Christian universal perspective, I mean, you were talking mm-hmm. about the Romans five passage um, that yeah. some people use to kind of um, support that view. That if yeah. um, because of Adam sin, all men um, yeah. or sinners, Christ. It's how do we make that distinction? How do you yourself kind of navigate through that?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Romans five eighteen, and also Romans uh, what is it? Is it eleven thirty two? I believe. And, and then there's a, there's a verses in Colossians one, uh, Philippians 2, 1 Corinthians fifteen. There's these statements that, in and of themselves, I, I would I would be very honest and say if, if if you're on a desert island and Romans five eighteen washed up on shore, we would all be universalists because. <laughs> <laughs> Because it says, yeah, I mean, in, I'm, not, I'm paraphrasing, I don't have a Bible in front of me, but um, in Adam, uh, just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be sort of justified. And now when I, you know, read the phrase, all in Adam die, most people say, well, that's everybody. And then, well, then what do you do with the second all, in the same verse? If the first all means everybody, the second one you would think would mean everybody. What, what do I do with that? Well, I would say this sounds fishy until I give biblical evidence, but <laughs> all doesn't always mean all. Um, the word all, in the, it's not just in the, I mean, it's even in the English. Like oftentimes in scripture, all means all types of people, not every single man, woman, and child. And within the book of Romans, you have this idea that Paul is pushing for Gentile inclusion or Jew Gentile inclusion. Unity within the faith. So oftentimes when you see all, the emphasis isn't every man, woman, and child that has ever lived, but the emphasis is not just Jews, but Gentiles also. God's a savior, all types of people is the idea. And you see this, you can see this clearly in Romans 2, Romans 3. And so when I get to Romans 5, what, so here's, here's where it gets tricky. While I do believe that all people have received sort of a sin nature through the sin of Adam, I don't think that's Paul's main emphasis. Even in Romans 5, I think his main point is that even you Jew, even you're, you're, if you're a Jew, you're still part of Adam, and you too are a sinner. You know, a, We all know Gentiles are sinners, <laughs> but even you Jew, everybody is a sinner, all types of people are sinners. So I think that that's the emphasis there in Romans 5.18. Um, but again, you know, people would push back on that. But I, I, I would again say, and I think everybody would agree with me that these isolated verses can't be taken like we need more evidence than just a verse here verse there. Like we need to look at these general themes in scripture. So again, when I take the annihilation perspective to me, the overwhelming biblical evidence for annihilation, I think that that inherently rules out the idea of ultimate reconciliation. Mm -hmm. And so I would need um, the, the universalists to show me why death doesn't mean the cessation of life why destruction doesn't mean to destroy you know like there's these many many statements that seem to suggest an end and a finality of them believe it or not an ultimate uh reconciliation of them but let having said all that i i i do consider some view some what well, how do I say it? Uh, some versions of the ultimate reconciliation view. I do consider those to be, I would say, within the evangelical camp. In fact, a friend of mine, Robin Perry, who wrote the book, who wrote the essay in the Four Views book, has a book titled The Evangelical Universalists. And I, and I, I look at that. And I, I do disagree with it. Um, we, we agree to disagree. But he presents a very solid biblical case for it. And he's clearly submitting to scripture. He's clearly... Um, embracing the the uniqueness of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And so he endorses these central components of the evangelical faith. So I, I don't, I don't say, Hey, you're a heretic. Let's burn you at the stake. Like I think <laughs> I, you know, I, I would say, no, you're, you're a brother of <laughs> Christ. Um, you're, you're centered on the gospel. You're not, you know, dismissing scripture. In fact, you're using scripture, but we can still agree to disagree on that. So that that's, I just want to make that clear in case people are of that camp. I, I don't, we, we can agree to disagree. I don't think you're a heretic. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I, I I asked on uh, Facebook if anybody had questions about this topic, and we did yeah. have a question um, from a guy named Brandon Davis. He said, how necessary is the work of Christ in light of the view of, purga- of a purgatory-like state? Doesn't it undermine its importance?
1: Good. That's a great question. There's two different versions of purgatory. One version's says that the suffering of the believer in purgatory contributes to the the atoning work of Christ. In other words, the atonement of Christ almost isn't sufficient enough. We need to do some atoning on our own. Now that I, I think that's flies in the face of the finished work of Christ. But what the author in this essay, Jerry Walls, as a Protestant, says, and he would agree, he would say, oh yeah, that that view, he goes theologically, that seems absurd. What he says is, the purgatory of the believer doesn't atone for sin, but it's a means of sanctification. So in the same way that every Christian would say, yes, a believer needs to work out his salvation with fear and trembling. He needs to obey Jesus. He needs to grow in Christ-likeness, And you have... I think, a, a relationship between human and divine agency in the sanctifying work. You know, Calvinists will emphasize <laughs> God's work in sanctification and the Arminian will emphasize, you know, human human work. Um, but everybody's going to agree, yes, there is a sanctifying process that the believer contributes to during his life on earth. So all Jerry Walls says is, well, I'm just taking that same framework and saying for those who haven't completed that sanctifying work on earth if they die prematurely they will continue that sanctifying process in the afterlife so the way and again i'm very happy and eager to disagree with both of those views of purgatory (laughs) (laughs) i I just find that i don't i find the biblical evidence very meager if if it's even there at all but um I, i do think that that second version of purgatory is very different than the first version the second version does not um sort of do away or downplay the atoning work of Christ? They they declare it, it is finished, but just because I mean, we don't, you know, participate in some sort of sanctification, so that's really good question. It's important, to, and he in the in the essay in the book he makes that distinction really clear up front. So I think it's really helpful that he does that.
0: That's helpful Um for those who are listening and wrestling with this, because I hear so many people like when I was talking to you, the friends who are now um, agnostic. Um, their whole yeah. thing was that in order for Christianity to work, hell must exist. The traditional view of hell must exist because if not, what's the point? Like they're okay if there's the annihilation type view where one can say that's kind of a a, a view known with Jehovah Witness. I think have something like annihilation. Yeah. Um, if if there's no hell, some people are okay with just not accepting christ and just ceasing to exist um (laughs) and uh some people if they're like okay well if christ's blood is redeems me even and and, you know as far as all being sin and his finished work of christ if i'm going to heaven anyway um what's the point of even accepting christ how do you respond to that
1: yeah, it's great. It's good. I mean, especially it's uh, the, these are the practical questions that we we need to um, we need to get to. I, I would be, you know, I would always before we get to the practical question, I would say the primary question is still, what does the Bible say? Well, you know, what, what um, we need to make sure we iron out what the Bible says, and then go to the practical questions. Uh, another clarification too: the annihilationists, well, neither the annihilationists nor the universalists, again, at least. The ones that are represented in the book. Nobody's denying the existence of hell. We're we're all arguing for the nature of hell. We all affirm the existence of hell. We affirm that there's punishment in hell. We affirm hell's a place to avoid. <laughs> um, but the nature of hell is what's on the table for debate now. With the annihilation. Um, so I yeah, people say some people say, well, the, you know, if it's if it's if we're all if the unbeliever's just going to die, then um. Then that's there's no fear there. Like we, we you know, like. Why would we even care to avoid that? Um, I don't know. F- first of all, I mean the annihilation takes the view that uh, God will execute capital punishment on those who rebel against them. I, I don't know anybody that says, "Oh, that's not, I'm not scared of capital punishment. Like, I mean, that, that's <laughs> the first thing that can happen, right? I mean, that's like. You have to do really bad stuff and you get capital punishment. So I, I don't – some people see it, Annihilation, they kind of downplay it like, oh, that's just a softening of hell. I, I think – I mean there's a fear. I think every human fears death. Like that's, that is a – I think we'd be wrong to say that that's not – we're not in a sense having a scary enough punishment. But secondly, again, I, I don't – I don't I don't know like when I look at the New Testament it doesn't seem like the apostles are running around trying to like scare people in heaven with the worst possible alternative you know like they're they're drawing people in by the goodness of Jesus and yes they do you know it's fascinating in the book of acts you hardly hear any you look at the the apostolic sermons in acts 2 acts 14 acts 17 and uh, acts 13 and 7 and you know rarely do they ever even talk about i don't think they don't mention the word hell but Paul in acts 17. He doesn't mention judgment, but it's not his main point. And uh, other sermons, they focus on the resurrection and lordship of Jesus. And they say, this is the this is your king, this is your lord, you need to submit to him. And, you know, he's, he's the life-giving lord. And so the, what's going to draw people in, I believe, is not ramping up the sort of fear factor of the alternative, but ramping up the goodness of Jesus. Not ramping up, but just revealing and unleashing the goodness of Jesus. Um with ultimate reconciliation, that that is, I think that is a very valid pushback that, look, why even preach the gospel? Why even care about this thing if at the end everybody's going to have second, third, fourth, fifth, infinite chances to accept Jesus? But I guess, again, the focus... And I'm not a universalist. I'm trying to answer for them. But if I was a universalist, I would say, well, the motivation is that um, the gospel gives people life. It produces human flourishing. And so we want people to embrace and participate in that human flourishing now. Like why wait? Like, like enter into it now. Um, So I don't know that that, that's the kind of response I've heard. I I don't, I don't know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What would be your last word for our listeners?
1: Oh yeah. My last word is always with this doctrine, we, we come at this doctrine with so many presuppositions. So I would say, Rub, rub your eyes pour an extra cup of coffee and try to study what the bible says without reading our presuppositions into it um and go where the text leads go with the text leads so don't be um you know don't out of fear you know go where you think you want to go or don't avoid this teaching because you don't like it like go with the text leads if the God we serve is a good God and if he breathed out the text of scripture as his life giving word then it's good stuff like we need to go where he says we should go so that's my encouragement
0: mm-hmm. and I want to encourage you to get um, um, Preston's books on hell erasing hell and the new book that comes out March 6th I believe March 8th, March 8th. Yes. I'm sorry March 8th um, Erase, I mean four views on hell um, which I think both of them are available on amazon.com And Preston also has a website. What's your website, Preston?
1: Prestonsprinkle.com.
0: Prestonsprinkle.com. And he has a book also. Uh, He has two books, a a book for youth and a book for adults on homosexuality. And if you listened to the last one, he um, unpacked that for us. Um, So I'd encourage you to get all of his books. And I think his social media links are available. His social media links are on his website. So you'll be able to check him out on there, thank you so much, uh, Preston. Uh, your official title, Dr. Sprinkle.
1: Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me, Lisa. It's always fun hanging out with you.
0: <laughs> awesome, thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude Three Project podcast. You can catch all our past episodes at wwwjew 3 project. Dot com Backslash podcast You can follow us on iTunes By searching Jude 3 Project Also you can follow us on Twitter At Jude 3 Project On Instagram at Jude 3 Project And on Facebook at facebook.com um, Backslash Jude 3 Project And remember you can donate on our site So if this um, this podcast And this ministry is a blessing to you Help support us financially um, By going on our website At jude3project.com And hitting the donate tab um, and donating, consider donating to us. Thank you so much. Remember, at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.